Hi, this is Thomas DePaulo. This is Dole. Hi, this is William Roy. Hey, this is Melon Bread. This is Jake Cook. This is Kevin Ham. And welcome to the Green Box. On today's episode, we take a deep dive into historical scenarios, how to run them, how to make them interesting, and we talk about some scenarios we've written or played in that were historical. We also talk about how to make characters go on the adventure you wrote for them, and not the adventure they're too scared to go on. Sometimes you have an idea that you want to run in Delta Green that does not take place in the present day. Sometimes you want to make your players care about something happening in a time period that is not their own. You would like them to have some understanding of the world around them, but you also understand that your players are not Imperial Yeomanry fighting the Boers in 1901. They are not uh, Soviet agents in East Germany in 1971. So how do I get from here to there? How do I write a cool historical scenario? And I can only describe what I've done, and I'm, I'm sure you guys can can jump in with the things that you've done. Uh, Delta Green already has two built-in past settings that it is made to be played with, and that is the 1940s, the World War II angle, and then there's the uh, Vietnam angle. 1990s? 1990s is good. That is also technically a historical setting. <laughs> nice job. Uh, but I was talking more about um, the other one is Vietnam, which is has been explored in a game by Ken Height and and friends called Fall of Delta Green. I think that it that is a great example of how to get people excited about something that would be in the past to them. Because I very much doubt that most of the people playing that game, as much as the stereotype of people who play this game as being like elderly grognards, I don't think most people who played Fall Delta Green are uh, from the 1960s and 70s. So that is a good example, a good book to look at for how do you do it. And the way that you do it is by providing lots of examples, providing lots of flavor, and not focusing too much on the tiny details, but including details that give sort of a window into what life was like for those people. So uh, here's an example for... Um, it's because you don't have to get every little thing right, because if your players don't know what the the specific time period is like, they're not going to catch you. But you want to get enough stuff that it paints a mental picture. I think it's important to use, kind of lean on the tropes of the era. So if you're doing a game set in the Wild West, you know, lean on that, okay, corral, lone gunman, horses and Indians, like lean on the tropes that are pretty common rather than leaning on the reality of it. And I, yeah, I think that it's good to present, and this is not, this is not something that I would like endorse in real life, but I'll definitely endorse in games. In a game, you want to be presenting almost a comic book version of history. You want to be, what are the, and this ties into my whole, my whole philosophy of always, always highlights, always high points, always trim the fat, always the lucky charms, marshmallows, and never the lucky charms. It's that you got to be focusing on what made that period come alive. What would people remember about it? And then you can fill in the tiny details that make people feel like, you know, they're really there or whatever. And I've found an extraordinarily effective cheap trick that allows me to do this. Would you guys like to hear it? Sure. Yes. I love cheap trick. You focus on, and this is something that I've done with three different historical scenarios now. You, you, pick, your, you pick a historical atrocity and you do that. Because there is no better way to make it stick in the players' minds. So... You tell people you're going to be driving around Southern Africa on a horse shooting at Dutch people. Okay, who, who cares? You tell them, no, you're going to be taking their wives and children and putting them in camps. And the players are stunned now. 
because you have made them complicit in a historical atrocity. Or for scalp hunters, your job is to go out and you get paid $100, which is a king's ransom in 1840, for every person you kill who could who you could reasonably con- convince someone that their dried and tanned scalp looked like a specific type of American Indian. Or it is the year 1963, Nyo Dinh Diem's government is about to crack down on Buddhists in Saigon. You need to go into uh, Jaloy Pagoda, and you need to go and ensure that they don't get their hands on something. And as for intervening as they, you know, throw people out of 10-story windows and break people's heads, shoot them, you know, beat on these uh, uh, people who have renounced, you know, all possibility of defending themselves. That's not your job. You need to get the artifact, you need to get out. So those are three examples. With your historical setting and you're picking a a very traumatic event, you obviously don't want to go too far. I probably wouldn't do a game about being, like, one one of the SS at Bobby Yar. You don't do that, but that's one way that you can bring an otherwise obscure historical period to life is by focusing on the juiciest, nastiest thing that you can think of there. Because let me tell you something about the people who play Delta Green. Um, don't want to overgeneralize, but it's usually people who are interested in that sort of thing. Because because people who, if, by playing Delta Green, they have some appetite for fucked up stuff. And I think that many many people who play Delta Green, we play Delta Green because we enjoy the, the creeping terror and the horror. So when you can tie that to a real thing, it just it just makes it makes it more real. Yeah, and you definitely you definitely don't want to go too far in the other direction. You don't want to um, be the guy who uh, who takes every every bad thing that happened in history and blames it on the great old ones. Like you don't want Nyarlathotep to be secretly you know Hitler or because because I mean people say that old Delta Green did did that, but they didn't actually do it. They that was a, just a ruse that. Um, the character he got memed into accepting. You don't actually do that because that is cheap. It's it, it, it people people get upset about it because it's offensive and sure, but also it's just lazy and not that interesting. And if every bad thing that ever happened is part of the fault of the great old ones, where do we humans come in? Where when's our turn to to be bastards? Because that's what New Delta Green is supposed to be about. I think that's one of the things that devs have said. And one of the things that I know several people in this conversation have said that they really enjoy. Yeah. And I think another way to do that specifically, I'm thinking of, you know, the context of Vietnam, you be as shitty as some people acted back then during that war. There's a thing on Ken Heights. I think it's either Ken Heights or Robin Law. One of the, one of the, the Pelgrin guys wrote on his uh, page that one of the themes of uh, that you, you can try and capture, like what are the themes of the era? And one of the themes of, Fall Delta Green that I actually really like is um, hubris. Like, you know, the government thought it could end poverty by using the power of social planning. They thought they could end the war in Vietnam by using technology, and Robert McNamara thought he could end it using statistics. But then you extend that to Delta, to, you know, Majestic. Majestic thinks they can weaponize the power of alien science. Delta Green thinks that they can stop the Great Old Ones. And then you, the player, they tied it specifically into um, the player characters having a lot of hubris, because what does a federal agent player character do when they have the power of life and death over other people? They abuse it without fail. And so, you know, strong, strong themes, uh, a strong hook, and do just enough research to get the flavor right. Those are my tips. But I know that I am not the only one in this discussion who has run historical scenarios, so I will let someone else take over. You've, we've heard my take from, another, from an older episode about Vietnam scenarios, and it's how it's kind of no man's land, just for me personally, from, from in the future. But It's great, because it, you, you there are kind of the complete opposite of me, because I just said lean really hard into the bad stuff. 
I guess I've read enough and, and seen enough and heard enough of Vietnam that I put that in the same category as like Holocaust for me. It's up to you to run whatever scenario you want, but like I won't touch it with a 10-foot pole anymore. And I say that, although I probably will at some point come back to it. But I think what I like about historical scenarios is like there feels like at some point in the day, end of the day, there's only so many scenarios you can do in modern times with modern things going on. So if you go back to something interesting, you can just pick one little point in time and do a cool mythos scenario around it. And I kind of made a joke earlier about you know how if you know, just you know if you if you don't if you just want to run a game in, in Rome use basic role playing system, but I think it'd be kind of cool to run a game in Rome where you're essentially doing the job of Delta Green. You're a bunch of Roman soldiers or Roman investigators. That game already exists. It's called Cthulhu Invictus. Yeah, I've never played it. You know where you're old like Roman centurions and you've come across some sort of elder thing and have to deal with it could be interesting. You know, no, I'm so, telling you that this this is already something that's a well developed setting for the original Call of Cthulhu. And you're right, it's I awesome. I agree that it exists. I know nothing about it, so I can't comment on it. It has so a it's... problem where uh, they took all of the, like, gods from the Roman pantheon, and they were just like, oh, you know, Bast, you know, Bast is the cat, and then, but then, like, oh, you know, Sybil is, is the Shubnigarath, and, you know, Jupiter is Yogg-Sothoth, and that's, that sucks. That part's stupid. But the parts of it are really cool. There's an old series of, of books, I forget who, who wrote them, but they're like a... This guy named Falco is a Roman, kind of like a Roman private investigator. Uh, and they were pretty historically accurate. I mean, for kind of pulpy, like, investigator books where he's still, like, a modern-day kind of private dick, you know, in terms of how he goes about things. But, like, you know, the, the research, I remember the Latin being pretty legit and the research into, like, the Agora and how the games were run and stuff was pretty legit. So that'd be a f- kind of fun place to do something. Lovecraft himself wrote a lot of stuff about Romans in his work. He has a very vivid description in one of his like dream journals or a letter he wrote or something about a very elaborate dream he had where he was spent like a month as like a Roman centurion or whatever and he was you know kept hearing about the evil in the hills and at the very end of the story he describes how the Roman guy stood up like a true a true patrician as a cold wave of evil washed down in him over the cave and stuff. Is that the the very old folk? It might be, I don't know. I just remember that specific phrase where he's talking about how noble this, you know, this cursor or whatever, whatever his rank was in Rome was about facing his own death. Yeah, I just bring it up because the very old folk is interesting in that it has that frame. It's a guy writing a letter to a friend about a dream he had where he was a Roman officer of some kind on one of these doomed expeditions. So, Heron, I know that you've run historical scenarios. I've only run one, I believe, and it was probably the one I was least happy with. Well, why were you unhappy with it? Uh, mostly because I wrote it on very short notice, and I felt like it was uh, pretty straightforward. There wasn't a lot that was interesting for the players to do. So not because it was a historical scenario, just because it wasn't. you didn't feel like it was your best work? Yeah, and I also think that... I had tied it pretty closely to another Lovecraft story, so the historical aspect wasn't as strong, I feel like. When did it take place? Uh, It was in the summer of 1941, so there was a bit about a Nazi spy in there, yeah, lurking around like the Boston Navy Yard and potentially sabotaging work on some of the destroyers. Then at the end, it was all like, the color out of space did it, and so... Another reason I didn't really like it so much is that I felt like the beginning was very divorced from what ha- was happening at the end. I mean, it gets used in the Cabin of the Woods scenario that I have co-opted, but uh, it, that could really be anything. Yeah, Color Out of Space is one of my favorite ones, so that was sort of the impetus for that scenario, was I wanted to see what would happen 
after that story had ended. So historical scenarios, what what do you do if you you've written one and you and you you followed Mel and Brad's advice in terms of picking a a cool historical tragedy and you're just kind of scratching the cool surface of it and the person you're playing with turns out to be like a super junkie from that era who knows way more than you do about it and uh you know like has all the answers you fucking make them work for you exactly what you do is you offload all the details in the scene setting to him you ask him what uh, what would you expect in this sort of scene here what uh what would these people be wearing what would they be carrying uh, what's what's over here what's over there get him to fill in all the details for you also mm- Perhaps manage expectations if it's actually a problem. Yeah, and also you can give, uh, if it is really enhancing your experience, give that one some kind of reward. I was looking at it as a problem, but you've turned it into a solution, and that's clever. But I understand what you're talking about, though, because we've had we've had we have this with all kinds of stuff. This is a, a smaller subset of a bigger thing that we've talked about previously. I don't know if it was aired. We could talk about it now. Uh, where. In Delta Green, Delta Green is a game set in the real world, and because it's set in the real world, you're eventually going to encounter someone who knows more about some subject than you do. And you can make that can work for you or it can work against you, because Delta Green is a game about law enforcement, and we have several people in our Discord, maybe even at least one of them in this chat, who have done that stuff in their real life and have stuff that they like to say about, um, you know, which forensics methods are actually garbage versus which ones can actually be used to track you. Or what can you legally get away with as a police officer? And the answer is always you want to try and make that work for you. And if you can't make it work for you, then you need to tell the player that this is true, what they're saying. But at the same time, we need to be able to play the game. And there are some interventions on the part of you know what real-world knowledge you have that work against that instead of in favor of it. And we ran into this with, um, with actually, with me actually, when you were doing your your uh, uh, Chinese ghost city adventure. And I, re- I realized how I, I could have handled that, which, and it, one, if I was a player, but also as a handler, I could say it's cool that you, Melonbread, know all this, but your character doesn't. So let's let's move on. Here's the thing, though, when it comes to what the character knows and what they, they you know, where's what I know, I am a human being with let's say average intelligence, let's be generous towards myself, let's Dunning-Kruger me, and a man with a man of average intelligence with basically no useful formal education. I have a meme undergraduate degree and I have a meme adult degree from graduate school. So I can be safely said to not know anything about anything important when it comes to formal education. So if I know something, it is completely reasonable for my character of 10 intelligence to know it. Wasn't this also the genesis of the uh, discussion we had in the pilot about exigent circumstances? Yes, it was the same thing. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's what I'm saying is if it, it's starting to become a point of friction. Oh yeah, no, that's something you can absolutely say to a player. And I'm saying, yeah, as a player, you might want to say, well, I know this, but my character shouldn't, so I'm going to just chill on this. If, if you can't find a way to work together in terms of, oh, cool, so you know all about these things, why don't you describe it, and vice versa. And again, just because. Like if, if if a player act, honestly argued to me that their 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 character might know it because it's a niche thing that they really know in real life, I'd probably find a way to kill them. Especially when we are dealing with historical context and the kind of games and people we play with that might come up. But I feel like depending on what character you're playing, it is actually something you would know. I'm thinking of you know stupid military knowledge. Dole, why don't you tell us about running scenarios? in the year 1980 to the year 1989. I played in one of Will Zuma's scenarios uh, dealing with this, the fall of Delta Green, where we have the end of the official 
you know, Delta Green Joint Chief of Staff program. It's right in the middle of the cowboy years. This is at this time is actually run a lot different from what we know as Delta Green in the 1990s as Cowboys, because this is before Fairfield is dead. So I feel like it's a very interesting place to set scenarios where you want to have the preliminary uh, talks about Majestic and stuff like that. It sounds like what you're saying to me is that in 1980s Delta Green, there is nobody there to help you, and there is nobody there to tell you what to do. Yeah, that, and you get to play Burnin' for you all the time. Don't know what that is. Perfect era to play a coked-up lawyer with a gun. Yeah. (laughs) That's very true. And you were talking about horrible historical events. Just talk about the the crackdown on crime, the cocaine trade. Actually, then Mellenberg can play a tow truck driver with a gun. This is a very esoteric reference to a piece of historical knowledge that I had and that you found very interesting. I mean, I I had seen the same documentary you had. So. Yeah, I mean, you. I mean, it's 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 an old trick. So, if we were going to talk about some scenarios that were set in this era, at least that we know of, first of all, for official scenarios, there are exactly zero. This is a very little covered part of the Delta Green history. Well, Dole, that's true about most time periods. From 1950, hell, there's not actually a single official Delta Green scenario set in the 1960s, except for the introductory module from Fall Delta Green. Oh, wait, no, there's one more. There's the free RPG, RPG Day Adventure. I, I do think if you if you split human history into decades, it's going to be more decades without Delta Green scenarios than de- that's than ones where with- I was getting at with this. Yes, but there's a lot of information about. Think about just in the scope of the Handler's Guide. If you go to the 1980 section, it's all about Majestic's beginnings. Well, no, because Majestic's beginnings were in the 1940s. Well, Majestic's Majestic's rise to power. You mean the Accord? Which you know, I I love the Greys and everything like that, but I feel like I don't. Well, you know, that's your opinion, Melon. It's actually a lot of people's opinion. It's one of the reasons why they got rid of Majestic and the New Delta Green. Every, every time I see Greys, I just think about that. I'm not Shyamalan movie with the water and the aliens look like really stupid rubber. Oh, science like rubber bands. That's aside from being a really stupid premise. It's actually a really good film. It is. It's just uh, yeah. It, the premise is retarded, but it's a really good like tense film. They should have gone full camp and just had their aliens beat dudes in rubber suits. So when they like, got hit, they just flopped around everywhere and looked really bad. Then it would have been fine. You know what I think of? I think of a Lamau, the fucking <laughs> meme about aliens. Jesus. Uh, to get back to what what Dole was saying, you know, there's a lot of fodder in the Handler's Guide and other books, other source books about where, where you could write scenarios around it. But you're right, there's really no official scenarios. But I think that's probably true about most areas. They give you the tools to kind of form your own scenarios given the canon they provide. Think about think about the 1960s in general with the Vietnam War. No disrespect to the 1980s or people who live there, but it seems to be a lot quicker and easier to get an idea for a scenario set in modern times or Vietnam or the 40s. Dole, that may, that may be an artifact of your lack of knowledge about the 1980s because stuff also happened during those years. That's very true. Yeah, I would disagree entirely that it's easy to go with it, or easier to come up with one vice the other. Dole, have you not noticed the surge of 80s nostalgia that has been permeating American culture for the last 10 years? Yes, it has. And the good thing about that is it gives us now there is new fodder to write 1980s scenarios with. But it's not new fodder because it's it's a romanticized vision of a decade that already happened. 
Yeah, the 1980s aren't new. They've been around for about the last 40 years or so. Sick. But <laughs> Dole, do, 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 uh, your, do, your, your point is well taken that there's not any scenarios written about it, and we could easily do one based on just this diffusion. Because how many people have said, I want to do Hotline Miami, but in Delta Green? I know of at least one, and it's not me. On one of the past Gen Con panels, they explicitly said the monster from Stranger Things is a dimensional shambler. Hotline Miami is not really the 80s, though. Isn't Hotline Miami and Delta Green just invite Mel and Bread to your Delta Green game? I think the question you have to ask yourself is, why are we having this conversation? And you thought I was going to ask, do you enjoy hurting other people? We're having this conversation because I enjoy hurting other people. Oh, well, it actually does take place in 1989. I, I stand corrected by myself. Yeah, it, the first one takes place in 89, and then the later ones take place in the 90s. But back on topic. That's a topic? What would be some good ideas for us to rhyme some... Uh, 1980 scenarios. And I would start with setting. At least for me, when I think of 1980s nostalgia and such, I'm thinking of big cities like New York, Chicago, Miami specifically. That's the only one anyone remembers, yeah. Yeah, and perhaps San Francisco, because Karate Kid or whatever. It's so much easier for me to think of 80s nostalgia than it is for the 90s. My my 90s nostalgia thoughts are Pokemon and Tomb Raider. Here's how you run your... your um... Uh, 80s nostalgia scenario. You run your game of of uh, Tales from the Loop, and at the very end, one of the kids just gets killed, just gets his fucking head blown off, and then wow. the, the men in suits, the men in suits come in and say, "All right, you didn't see anything, but hey, guess what? Now you are a member of the government conspiracy that will stop things like this from happening to other people in the future, and we'll contact you." Bam, Delta Green. Melon, that's what the new expansion they're kickstarting is for. Wait, really? Yeah, Things from the Flood is in the 90s, and it, the, the, oh, big shit. Thing, the big thing is that now you're teenagers and you can die. Damn, son. Good good for them. Are we really in an era where you can capitalize on 90s nostalgia? <laughs> we are fast approaching God damn. I mean, when I think 90s nostalgia, I think the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, that too. Oh, God. If there's not... If people don't have their rooms wallpapered with fucking Pokemon cards, it's not really 90s nostalgia. If we're going to talk about 90, 90s nostalgia and Pokemon cards, you should you should look at my collection. Dole, how can you have 90s nostalgia if you weren't alive in the 1990s? Boom! Got him. I mean, most, most of it was early 2000s, you're right. I mean, mo- you're right in the sense that most of the shit people are nostalgic for when they talk about 90s carried well over in the early 2000s. It's like how Seinfeld was technically from the 80s because the pilot aired in 1989. Ooh, Seinfeld. That is, yeah, I fucking love that show. One thing that people today don't, um, if you weren't alive back then, it's hard to um, grasp, was that throughout, from the 60s to the 80s, America's cities were basically considered death zones. Is that today, Today, the city is the hit place to live, and the rural area is the death zone, where everyone's, you know, shooting each other and dying of opiates. But in the in the 80s, it was the opposite, where where anyone who was wealthy or white or some combination of the two was getting the fuck out of the cities as fast as possible. Uh, the 70s and 80s, uh, the film Death Wish illustrates succinctly the just extreme social fear of crime in urban areas that existed at the time. One of the things that 1960s Delta Green is supposed to be about, 60s and 70s, is this feeling people had at the time that the world was fucking ending. And it's about translating a sort of a, an extreme sense of unease and terror experienced by large sections of the populace into this setting of, you know, cosmic horror or whatever. And you could just as easily do that with the stuff that people felt in the 1980s because a lot of it was quite similar. Like, people think of people think that the war on drugs is from the 80s. It's actually from the 70s. Um, but uh, 
same thing. Like, the building blocks are all there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like maybe this is just because of my age, and I don't know anyone besides perhaps Kevin, who was alive around here in the and was coherent in the 1980s. Was he? A coherent is a strong word for Kevin. You're not that old, are you, Kevin? Old enough. I knew you were older than I am, Kevin. I think you were that much older than I, I mean, am. I have memories of the 80s, but it's not like I was 15. Well, yeah, I think I assume you were I assume you were born in the early 80s. Yeah, exactly. I'm more of a 90s kid, but I mean, honestly, only I remember that, so. Yeah, I'm afraid that as soon as it the, turned the year 2000, that whole time period was just stripped from my memory. I remember the 90s. No, you, you don't unless you click through this BuzzFeed article. How do you know that you remember something and then it is not just things that have been inserted post I know that I exist. I know that I have memories because... because How do you know that? I, th- I think, therefore, I'm ham. Oh my god. He, he made a pun. It's good. It's good. I have a helpful memory device to remember the 90s because prior to the 90s, I, like in the 90s, I lived in Vancouver and then like the late, late 90s to the early to the 2000s is when I moved to the Vancouver Island. So that's... that's I have a, I have a distinct m- memory... Uh, division there distinct a distinct division you say you know what creates distinct divisions in recorded media a cut so last time maybe the time before that uh, in a previous session which has aired will you expressed a sentiment that I broadly agree with, which is that you should make a character who wants to go on the adventure. I do think that that is a bit different in a one-shot versus a broader campaign, but I think that overall the two line up pretty closely, which is that you want to have someone who's got a motivation that doesn't require them to constantly be dragged into everything. But what does that mean for the player? What is beyond just rolling on the table in the Delta Green briefing documents to find out why you join the organization? What's a good way to make a character who's actually actively interested in this stuff? So I, I guess it's a better example. It would be the character who the hook for the adventure is, you know, the player has to, re, you know, they read this ancient book and they, they discover something and go chase it. And in, in game, the player is like, well, I don't want to read the book. So then the stalls out the entire adventure and nothing happens. So, you know, the the snarky answer is, well, your character lives a nice, happy life. Roll up a new character who wants to read the damn book. But is there a better way? I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to say that's not only the snarky answer. That is the correct answer. I think in, in a one shot, you're right. But what if what if it's a long standing campaign and this character doesn't doesn't read books? I don't think it's any different. No, but because I think that that the trouble we 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 get into when we get into a bigger campaign is that on a one shot is the player's obligation to create a character who will go on the adventure. In a campaign, it is you create a character who hypothetically has motivation to go on many adventures, but the hook presented to them may not always align with that. And it's not just from a perspective of what, you know, that's what my character would do, man. It, to me, also gets to a place where it can strain credibility after a certain point. It absolutely can. And I think the trap there is to think of the character as this is my character. This is the character that I will always play in every session. I think players shouldn't be afraid to say, to, to, if, to, to look at a scenario hook and go, you know what? I don't think my agent would go for that. I think this is where he departs the campaign. Let me roll up a new one. That's completely fair, and I agree with it. However, let's take this. Ex- let's take. Let's take the the alternate view that you expect the character to be played until it is used up, and that is the point. You'll make a new one, and ha- then how would I design a character that was robust enough and play that character that was robust enough 
to want to participate in everything that was offered to them. I want to finish your thought from a second ago, which you said that in a one shot, it's a player's job to make a character who's going to go on the adventure. I think in a longer campaign, it's the handler's job to write an adventure for all of his characters. That's probably fair, actually. Yeah, because you know, in a, a one shot, you you have no way of knowing who's going to show up at your table. Usually, you're like a con game. But if you've been playing this, with these people for five sessions and you know that one character. Back to my book example, if you know that he's read two books already and both times it went horribly wrong, it's your fault if you make it a scenario where he has to read a book to go somewhere because you know he's not going to do it. Or maybe he's addicted to knowledge and you know he will do it and it's a great hook. So what are some pieces of advice? Because I agree with you that, yeah, it's the handler's responsibility to, do, to, to give the player something to chew on and to recognize patterns and not do things in defiance of something that's very obviously going to be a problem, unless that problem is itself supposed to be part of the campaign. Because one of the things I like about the the campaign is that if the players do start doing stuff like, you know, lying to the handler to to change what they what it is that they're asked to do by Delta Green, then that can be part of a larger meta instead of just being them denying, you know, an opportunity to go on an adventure. Because I was thinking about it in the context of the scenario Holy War, where about halfway through the players are told, oh, actually we have a truce with this occult terrorist organization. Don't do anything to antagonize them no matter what you do. And my feeling when I read that has always been, well, that's where the campaign's going to end right there because they're going to antagonize them and they're not going to go after the, you know, um, the the Glacky cultist or the Gallinat cultist or whatever. No, they're going to fucking go after the terrorist organization that lives in the basement of the, the tissue paper company. So generally, you know, when I make a character, I, I make his motivations kind of in a vacuum, um, and they're usually pretty generic. If I even put down any at all, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I just leave that part blank. I know as a player that, you know, I can tell when a handler is, say, struggling to, to get things kind of back on track. So I have no problem as a player in, in the moment just making an in-character decision to get things back on track. Um, but I will say that that harms me when it comes to having interesting uh, interesting or unique players because I'll, I'll bet my players' motivations and needs to suit making a cool campaign or a cool adventure. Whereas I know I've seen some players who have not done that and they've made very, very interesting characters out of it. But I, I wonder, I don't know, it feels like mine might help out the overall game a little better. So are you offering that as a piece of advice to the handler or as to the player? I'm already as, as a as I mean, here's what I do. I'm not sure if it's the best practice or not. It's just usually how I do things. When I hear, because um, I think there's a lot of people who who would who disagree about what the appropriate role of a character in a game is. It's are you trying to make a character that has lots of strong characteristics and you know has a has a lot of personality and really comes to life? Because that is usually I think held up as the ideal. But I do think a valid concern, based on what you just said, is that the more the more kind of shape a character has, then the harder it is to kind of slot them into any type of situation. Maybe it is incumbent on the handler to design scenarios, but then I don't want it to be just like a clo- like a closing of doors. Like there's stuff that you can't do because it doesn't make sense for the the characters that you have. But I think that is the way that it would have to be. I'm trying to think of a more uh, specific piece of advice to give other than as the player try and find a way to make to 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 make it work for your agent but i mean i don't know that there is a one-size-fits-all solution that will work for every character because it is so dependent on the character's motivations and 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 such i think that um the reason why the character wants to fight the unnatural is important because that's the one thing that that uh, spans all of the material why don't we talk about some examples from characters in our in our rosters, and maybe maybe the listeners can can use that to draw sort of a general trend. And uh, let me just do a, a brief, a brief uh, aside. 
Um, you know, one of the benefits to having good motivations is that when you fulfill them, you can regain willpower. So if you're trying to power game, and if you're trying to power game, then your motivations should be something like do good, save people, like really generic, so you can grab as much willpower as you can. But those aren't that useful for, you know, do good isn't as good as make sure my daughter has a college education. But you're, you're much less likely to fulfill the second one. And there's no there's no benefit to having a more narrow motivation aside from maybe good player characterness i mean I'll, I'll just i'll just say that, that like do the right thing and and such those are great motivations for delta green because when you pick up disorders you will replace motivations with disorders so do the right thing is usually one of the first ones to go for my characters yeah that's true uh, i'm actually curious I'm gonna, I'm gonna open up a couple a couple of my characters i'm actually curious if i even have motivations listed for them so this this may be a do as i do do as i say not as i do segment ironically if i google night of the opera roster i get the queen album wikipedia article not not helpful. Why are you googling it? It's not on Google. It's not because linked. I was hoping it was. You need to Google. I was hoping it was going to pull up in my recent history, and it didn't. So I hit enter out of frustration, and here we are. Fucking boomers. I don't think that's something. Escape. That was a search engine. I, I gotta go ask Lycos. Hang on. Ask Jeeves. I remember when you had to actually ask Jeeves a question. You couldn't just mash words into it. All right. So my the first character I made from Night of the Opera. Actually, he he had pretty interesting motivations, but he died. Be- he was brutally murdered by melon bread, or and a lack of knowledge of the dodge rules. You know, you know that wouldn't have saved you, right? Dodging <laughs> lets you claim dodging lets you claim cover. Claiming cover gives you the armor value that of that cover. That might have saved me. The guy who was shooting at you, the guy who was shooting at you, was using a three hundred eight. It had five armor penetration and drywall. No, has it was five behind armor. a concrete wall of a uh, exterior wall of a motel. What do you mean the exterior wall, exterior wall of a motel is but, not in a concrete? Whatever. Anyway, he, he died. It's your fault. Um, but his motivations were. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Hunk on this one. This is war. Survival is your responsibility. So his motivation is to stop the pacification of America because I was playing him as a very very jingoistic American. But I never never really had a chance to, to play that up, and I and I only listed one motivation. Uh, see, my one, my my other character has no motivation, and my third character just has uncovering the truth, which is so generic that even I hate it. Will, what about you? Um, I do have a character. All right, so Agent Morgan, the CIA spook who got kicked forward in time, one of his motivations is protect my people, which is sort of my way of codifying that he is he answers the call of Delta Green not because he's loyal to Delta Green, but because he's loyal to the people he works with. Let's see, I have um. I don't know if I did it on the the full ver the like played version, but on the um, version of Agent Gagnon that I wrote as a pregen, I had something similar. Motivations: protect your people, live long enough to retire, and don't let the bad guys get the first shot. I think live long enough to retire is a one that I have also used. In fact, that exact wording. That's fair. However, I think that of all the motivations, I think that's the one that would probably lead to the most not doing things. Really? Because I mean, that's. That's that's actually that's true, but the one character that I had that used that motivation, uh, that was that was the first one to go. So uh, on my Gen Con pre-gen version of my uh, my criminal character Saphir, he does have uh, get rich, make it out ahead, unearth lost knowledge, and battle darkness with light, which is a little. They're also pretty generic, but you, but if you're uh, picking this character up at a con game, you can kind of bend them to create a, a quick persona. I think, which is which is the goal there. I think I've made I've made some of my pregens here with motivations that are too specific. Because there's one guy here who had like this really elaborate backstory about where he was part of a plot to kill a member of his own family to get the March Technologies inheritance that she had. 
then it's written in here that one of his motivations is to figure out what this person, this family member that he murdered, was really doing. And for a pre-Geneticon, that's pointless, because that's not going to be in any of the scenarios. Unless he's a character that's specifically designed for a scenario, that motivation's got to go. Be replaced with something that's more useful. I also think most of our con pre-gen should have, like, two motivations filled in and then some blanks to let people fill in. That's a good that's idea. That's nice, yeah. Uh, I have a character here for a game that I ended up not actually being able to play in, where... Uh, he's got two of his motivations are actually three of them are actually relevant. Uh, he's got stay alive no matter what, which you'd think would lead him away from Delta Green. He also has always lend a hand and look before you leap, which kind of, and I don't remember if I did this intentionally or not, but kind of feed into the little quick two, three sentences I wrote about how he got roped into Delta Green. I, I guess the thing that I'd set up there was that those three motivations sort of oppose and also feed into each other. You know, one is about survival. Another one is about, you know, doing stuff that people ask you to do. Somebody asks you to do something dangerous. What do you do? Well, you, you, you make damn sure it's as safe as you can do it. Ultimately, I think any Delta Green agent is going to have some kind of a way, whether it's written in the motivation section of the character sheet or not, but it's going to have some kind of a motivation to to take their vacation days and go flying across the country to maybe get eaten by a monster. Like, because otherwise, why would they have accepted? Yeah, I mean, they're going to have some sort of do-good style motivation. Or maybe not even that. Maybe just... I mean, I... I can imagine a Delta Green agent who gets to a certain point where their their motivation to keep going is not so much doing the right thing, but because that's that's all they know. You know, it's it's more mental effort to break out of the cycle now than to just keep keep digging until you hit China. So, I mean, did we did we just ramble for thirty minutes or twenty minutes, or did we actually provide some useful advice? I think there's some useful advice in there somewhere. The main takeaway, I think, is that there isn't there might not be a one size fits all solution. Um, and I, I wish there was one. And I hope the examples we've given to our listeners are helpful in trying to figure one out. I guess if I if I were to give advice to someone who is completely stuck, who is in a situation where the next hook for the the ongoing investigation is something that just like their character doesn't wouldn't have any would would actively run away from, and they don't want to make a new agent, I guess my best advice would be just just retcon the character. I mean, I guess I would say. You know, your motivations are just what drives you, and I've certainly in my life done things that I wasn't a big fan of, so maybe you just suck it up and you just gripe the whole time, and you make it part of your character. Like, I fucking, I told you idiots, we're not going on this fucking adventure, and now he's dead, and I say we shouldn't even come here. I'm not even supposed to be here today. That's good, and that's good as long as you're not fighting the handler, because I've been in games where someone is, oh, absolutely. Doing, is doing that, and they're actively fighting the GM. There's a, there's a difference I like to explain to folks, because it comes up remarkably often in my real life, between bitching and griping. So if you're bitching about something, it means you're complaining and you're not, you're not moving forward. If you're griping, you're doing the job. You may hate picking up all these rocks, but you're going to, and while you pick up the rocks, you might talk about how stupid picking up rocks is and how you didn't sign up for this and this is dumb, but you're still going to pick up all the rocks. That's griping. Bitching is, is getting a job to pick up all the rocks, bitching about not picking up the rocks, saying how dumb it is and not picking up the rocks. So as long as you're uh, still moving forward, I think it's fun to have your character be kind of salty about it. Yeah, and that's a great character moment. I like I like what you described in the context of a game, but in the context of a job, I don't think that's a good idea because if you establish that you'll complain but do whatever they tell you, even if it's not part, even if it's clearly not part of the job. Well, and clearly, we now we didn't find out that Melonbread has never been in the U.S. military and never had to pick up a bunch of rocks. Thank you for listening to The Green Box. Please take a look at us on social media. We're at 9MMRetirement on Twitter and Facebook. 
You can find us in the r slash night at the opera subreddit as well as the discord. And remember, it's not the bad dice rolls that are going to get you killed. It is the bad decisions. <laughs>